This is chapter 19, titled Celestial Distances. And there are four sections in this chapter. They are 19.1, Fundamental Units of Distance. 19.2, Surveying the Stars. 19.3, Variable Stars, One Key to Cosmic Distances. And 19.4, the HR Diagram and Cosmic Distances. The opening figure is one that I think is just astounding, so I'm going to read the caption. Figure 19.1, globular cluster M80. This beautiful image shows a giant cluster of stars called Messier 80, located about 28,000 light years from Earth. Such crowded groups, which astronomers call globular clusters, contain hundreds of thousands of stars, including some of the RR Lyra variables discussed in this chapter. Especially obvious in this picture are the bright red giants, which are stars similar to the sun in mass that are nearing the ends of their lives. How large is the universe? What is the most distant object that we can see? These are among the most fundamental questions that astronomers can ask. But just as babies must crawl before they can take their first halting steps, so too must we start with a more modest question. How far away are the stars? And even this question proves to be very hard to answer. After all, stars are mere points of light. Suppose you see a point of light in the darkness when you're driving on a country road late at night. How can you tell whether it is a nearby firefly, an oncoming motorcycle some distance away, or the porch light of a house much further down the road. Turns out to be not so easy. Astronomers faced an even more difficult problem when they tried to estimate how far away the stars are. In this chapter, we begin with the fundamental definitions of distances on Earth, and then extend our reach outward to the stars. We will first examine the newest satellites that are surveying the night sky, and discuss the special types of stars that can be used as trail markers to distant galaxies. This is section 19.1, Fundamental Units of Distance. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. First, understand the importance of defining a standard distance unit. Second, explain how the meter was originally defined and how it has changed over time. And three, discuss how radar is used to measure distances to the other members of the solar system. The first measures of distances were based on human dimensions. The inch as the distance between knuckles on the finger, I remember my mom showing me this, or the yard as the span from the extended index finger to the nose of the British king. Later, the requirements of commerce led to some standardization of such units, but each nation tended to set up its own definitions. It was not until the middle of the 18th century that any real efforts were made to establish a uniform international set of standards. Let's consider the system of units preferred not only by scientists, but also by most of the world. It's the metric system. One of the enduring legacies of the era of the French Emperor Napoleon is the establish of the metric system of units, officially adopted in France in 1799 and now used in most countries around the world. The fundamental metric unit of length in the metric system is the meter, 
originally defined as one ten millionth of the distance along Earth's surface from the equator to the pole. French astronomers of the 17th and 18th century, as it turns out, were pioneers in determining the dimensions of the Earth. So it was logical, from their point of view, to use their information as the foundation of the new system. Practical problems exist with a definition expressed in terms of the size of the Earth, since anyone wishing to determine the distance from one place to another can hardly be expected to go out and remeasure the planet. Therefore, an intermediate standard meter consisting of a bar of platinum iridium metal was set up in Paris. In 1889, by international agreement, this bar was defined to be exactly one meter in length, and precise copies of the original meter bar were made to serve as standards for other nations. Other units of length are derived from the meter, thus one kilometer equals a thousand meters, and one centimeter equals one one-hundredth of a meter, and so on. Even the old British and American units, such as the inch and the mile, are now defined in terms of the metric system. Modern redefinitions of the meter. This is where it gets fun. In 1960, the official definition of the meter was changed again as a result of improved technology for generating spectral lines of precisely known wavelengths. The meter was redefined to equal 1,650,763.73 wavelengths of a particular atomic transition in the element Krypton 86. The advantage of this redefinition is that anyone with a suitably equipped laboratory can reproduce a standard meter without reference to any particular metal bar in a given city. In 1983, the meter was defined once more, this time in terms of the velocity of light. Yes, light in a vacuum can travel a distance of one meter in one over 299,792,458.6 seconds. Today, therefore, light travel time provides our basic unit of length. Put another way, a distance of one light second, the amount of space light covers in a second, is defined to be 299,792,458.6 meters. That's almost 300 million meters that light covers in just one second. And actually, when we talk about the speed of light, we usually round up to 300 million meters per second, or three times 10 to the eighth meters per second as the velocity. Light is really fast. We could just as well use the light second as the fundamental unit of length, but for practical reasons and respect to tradition, we have defined the meter as a small fraction of the light second. When we talk about distances like centimeters or inches, we're talking about really small things. And when we talk about meters, we're talking about something close to a yard. So I'm five, five and a half, which makes me a little over a meter tall. That's really not very much of a distance. When we talk about kilometers, we can state things that are a little bit further in length. Like for example, a marathon is about 42.2 kilometers. I know because I ran one in France <laughs> where they used kilometers. Also the distance between cities. But when we think about distances in our solar system, we're thinking about really, really big distances. So let's talk about those kinds of distances. And we'll start with the work of Copernicus and Kepler. Their work established the relative distances of the planets. That is, how far from the sun one planet is compared to another. 
but their work couldn't establish the absolute distances in light seconds or meters or other standard units of length. If I give you an example, think about the planets and their order from the sun. We have the sun, we have Mercury, we have Venus, we have Earth, we have Mars. Then we have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. So they're all different distances, and we know that Neptune is further away from the sun than Earth is. And in fact, Neptune is about 30 times further from the sun as Earth. But that doesn't tell us exactly how far Neptune or the Earth is from the sun. It just tells us the relative distances. A similar conundrum comes from, and this is stated in the text, knowing the height of all the students in our class only as compared to the height of me, your astronomy instructor. Of course, it gives us relative heights, but if you were to describe your height relative to mine, that wouldn't tell someone exactly how tall you are. They wouldn't know if they don't know how tall I am. They wouldn't know how tall you are in feet or in meters. So somebody's height has to be measured directly in that example. And similarly, to establish absolute distances, astronomers had to measure one distance in the solar system directly. Generally, the closer to us an object is, the easier such a measurement would be. And estimates of the distance to Venus were made as Venus crossed the face of the sun in 1761 and 1769. And an international campaign was organized to estimate the distance to the asteroid Eros in the early 1930s when, it or when its orbit brought it close enough to Earth. More recently, Venus crossed or transited the surface of the Sun in 2004 and 2012, fairly recent history, and allowed us to make a modern distance estimate. Although, as we'll see below, by then it wasn't needed. There's a link to learning box here, which I encourage you to visit and to click the link. It says, if you would like more information on just how the motion of Venus across the sun helped us pin down distances in the solar system, you can turn to a nice explanation by an astronomer. So now you're curious, right? If we didn't have to wait for Venus to cross the face of the sun to get a good measure to how far away Venus was from us, what did we do? Well, it turns out that we used radar, which is a type of radio wave that can bounce off solid objects. Timing how long a radar beam traveling at the speed of light takes to reach another world and return tells us the distance involved very accurately. In 1961, radar signals were bounced off of Venus for the first time, providing a direct measurement of the distance from Earth to Venus in terms of light seconds. And we got that from the round-trip travel time of the radar signal. So we had to divide that by two and determine the distance from that halved travel time. Subsequently, radar has been used to determine the distances to Mercury, Mars, the satellites of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, and several asteroids. Note, by the way, it's not possible to use radar to measure the distance to the sun directly because the sun doesn't reflect radar very well. But we can measure the distance to many other solar system objects and use Kepler's laws to give us the distance to the sun. From various related solar system distances, astronomers selected the average distance from the Earth and the Sun as our standard measuring stick within the solar system. Average distance is important because if you remember, planets as they orbit the Sun, they traverse ellipses, not perfect circles. So sometimes they're closer to the Sun than other times. In this case, when the Earth and Sun are closest, they're about 147.1 million kilometers apart. 
And when the Earth and the Sun are the farthest, they're about 152.1 million kilometers apart. The average of these two distances is called the astronomical unit. It's that simple. <laughs> when we express all the other distances in the solar system in terms of the AU, the numbers become a lot easier to deal with. If you want to know what astronomers do, they do stuff like this. So years of painstaking analyses of radar measurements have led to a determination of the length of the AU, astronomical unit, to a precision of about one part in a billion. The length of one AU can be expressed in light travel time as 499.004854 light seconds, or about 8.3 light minutes. If we use the definition of the meter given above, this is equivalent to about, oh, let me get this right, 149,597,870,700 meters. That's quite a distance. These distances are, of course, here given to a much higher level of precision than we normally need. In this text, we are usually content to express numbers to a couple of significant places and leave it to that. For our purposes, it will be sufficient to round off these numbers. So there's a list of numbers. Um, speed of light, C, is equal to about 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. Or if you want kilometers, it would be 3 times 10 to the 5th kilometers per second. The length of a light second is such that one second equals, and that's one light second, I should say, equals 3 times 10 to the 8 meters, or 3 times 10 to the 5th kilometers. See how they're related? The astronomical unit, AU, is equal to 1.50 times 10 to the 11 meters, or, if you'd like, 1.5 times 10 to the 8 kilometers, or even easier, 500 light seconds. We now know the absolute distance scale within our own solar system with fantastic accuracy. This is the first length in the chain of cosmic distances that we'll talk about. Link to learning. So there's another box here that has a link that I recommend that you visit. It says the distances between the celestial bodies in our solar system are sometimes difficult to grasp or put in perspective. This interactive website provides a map that shows the distances by using a scale at the bottom of the screen and allows you to scroll using your arrow keys through screens of empty space to get to the next planet. All the while, your current distance from the sun will be visible on the scale. This is section 19.2 on surveying the stars. And by the end of the section, you should be able to do three things. One, understand the concept of triangulating distances to distant objects, including stars. Two, explain why space-based satellites deliver more precise distances than ground-based methods. And three, discuss astronomers' efforts to study the stars closest to the sun. It's an enormous step to go from the planets to the stars. For example, our Voyager 1 probe, which was launched before I was born in 1977, has now traveled farther from the Earth than any other spacecraft. As this is written in 2016, the text, Voyager 1 is 134 astronomical units from the Sun. The nearest star, however, is hundreds of thousands of astronomical units from Earth. 
Even so, we can, in principle, survey the distances to the stars using the same technique that civil engineer employs to survey the distances to an inaccessible mountain or tree, the method of triangulation. So what is this triangulation? Let's think about it. A practical example of triangulation is your own depth perception. As you're pleased to discover every morning when you look in the mirror, your two eyes are located some distance apart. <laughs> you, you therefore view the world from two different vantage points, and it is thus this dual perspective that allows you to get a general sense of how far away objects are. To see what this means, take an object like your thumb and hold it pretty close to your face, maybe a few inches from it. Look at it first with one eye, closing the other, and then switch eyes. Notice how your thumb seems to shift a lot relative to the objects far behind it. Now hold your thumb at arm's length and do the same thing. You'll notice that the shift is less. If you play with moving your thumb for a while close to your face, further from your face, you'll notice that the farther away you hold it, the less it seems to shift. Your brain automatically performs these comparisons and gives you a pretty good sense of how far things away are <laughs> in your immediate neighborhood. Let's see what this means using something really close to home. Take your thumb and hold it just a few inches in front of your face. Look at it first with one eye, closing the other, and then switch eyes. Notice how your thumb seems to shift relative to the objects behind it. Now hold your thumb at arm's length. Notice that the shift is less. And if you play with moving your thumb for a while, you'll notice that the farther away you hold it, the less it seems to shift. Your brain automatically performs such comparisons and gives you a pretty good sense of how far away things are in your immediate neighborhood. Here's a fun one. Imagine all the things you could do if your arms were made of rubber. Perhaps more importantly, imagine all the things you could not do <laughs> if your arms were made from rubber. Well, in the text it says, if your arms were made from rubber, you could extend your thumb so far away that when you close one eye relative to the other, you wouldn't even notice a shift. And this is because our depth perception fails for objects more than a few tens of meters away. So we're really bad at judging how far away objects that are really far away actually are. In order to see the shift of an object that's really far away from you, your eyes would have to be further apart from one another and a lot further apart. There's a term for the phenomenon that occurs when you hold your thumb some distance from your face, close one eye relative to the other, and see it shift around. That's called parallax, and it, it may seem like a fun thing to do, but it's also really important. We'll find that it's important in astronomy, and it's also important for surveyors. So you've probably been driving down the road, and you see someone sort of bending over this tripod and looking through something that's not very clear what they're looking through, but they're looking through something. And they look official. So often they're, the color of the tripod is like yellow or orange, and sometimes they're wearing a hard hat and you think, I don't know what they're doing, but that's pretty cool. They're surveyors, and surveyors do all kinds of things. They update boundary lines and prepare sites for constructions to prevent legal disputes. They make really precise measurements just by looking through this tripod thing to determine property boundaries. And they also provide data relevant to the shape and the contour of Earth's surface for all kinds of things like engineering, map making, construction projects. You get the idea. 
the text uses surveyors as an example, and, and it actually really is a very good example, but they refer to a figure in the text a lot. And so without having the figure in front of you, it's kind of hard to follow along. So I'll just point out the main features. So if let's just say that there's a surveyor and they're trying to figure out the distance to a tree that's some distance away, some across a river, it's across a valley, it just doesn't make sense to go and try and actually like measure the, the distance too. So what they do is they put their tripods at two different positions, kind of like one position would be your eye, the left eye, and one position would be your other eye, the right eye. So they just put these in two different positions and then they look at the object that's far away and they see how much it shifted when they make their measurements. They can't really measure the distance to the object far away, but what they can measure is the distance between the two points where they place their stations. And they use this as well as some angles that they measure to figure out how far away the object is. So really it can use trigonometry, which is a wonderful form of math. And, and what they have is a triangle. So the two surveying stations would make up two points on the triangle and the object far away would make the third point. And so just by having um, information about a triangle, you can learn other information about the triangle. And that's really the whole point of trigonometry and geometry, at least when talking about um, triangles. So it's a really neat thing where we can be clever and use different positions on the earth to measure something far away. All right. In practice, these kinds of baselines that surveyors use for measuring distances on Earth are actually useless when we try to gauge distances in space, and it's because objects in space are so far away. So remember what we said about if your thumb is really far away, in order to see the shift, you actually have to move your eyes further apart from one another. <laughs> and we can't do that. But what it's basically saying is that if we use two surveying points on Earth to try and figure out how far away the moon is or how far away a star is, the the, the points, the surveying points are too close together. So let's talk about how we've gotten around that in history. And I'll just pick up in the reading. In practice, the kinds of baselines surveyors use for measuring distances on Earth are completely useless when we try to gauge distances in space. The farther away an astronomical object lies, the longer the baseline has to be to give us a reasonable chance of making a measurement. Unfortunately, nearly all astronomical objects are very far away. To measure their distances requires a really large baseline and highly precise angular measurements. The moon is the only object near enough that its distance can be found fairly accurately with measurements made without a telescope. Ptolemy, the Greek astronomer, determined the distance to the moon correctly to within a few percent. He used the turning of the Earth itself as a baseline measuring the position of the moon relative to the stars at two different times of night, since his position had changed dramatically during the night. Now imagine this, what if Ptolemy had taken two measurements, maybe not to the moon, but to a planet that was visible in the sky all day, and he made two measurements, one measurement 12 hours after the other. Then he would have measurements uh, basically on opposite sides of the Earth. The Earth would have rotated 180 degrees, and that's the maximum distance that we can get from stations on Earth. We can be on one side of the Earth relative to the other side of the Earth making that particular measurements. And that's basically what astronomers did. They used Earth's diameter as a baseline to determine the distances to nearer planets and asteroids. And that's how the astronomical unit actually was first established. 
So that's to measure distances to things like planets and asteroids. But to measure distances really, really far away, like stars, we need a much longer baseline. And we can't make Earth larger. I mean, we can't go increase the diameter of the Earth. So what do we do? Well, we can wait for different times in Earth's orbit where Earth itself has moved and thereby traced a longer baseline between the two measurements that we make. Let's think about how we measure the distances to stars. As Earth travels from one side of its orbit to the other, it graciously provides us with a baseline of two astronomical units, or about 300 million kilometers. Although this is a much bigger baseline than the diameter of Earth, the stars are so far away that the resulting parallax shift is still not visible to the naked eye, not even for the closest stars. Earlier in the text, we discussed how this dilemma perplexed the ancient Greeks, some of whom actually suggested that the sun might be the center of our solar system, with Earth in motion around it. Aristotle and others argued, however, that Earth could not be revolving around the sun, which we now know is wrong. <laughs> if it were, they said, we would surely observe the parallax of the near-Earth stars against the background of more distant objects as we viewed the sky from different parts of Earth's orbit. Tycho Brahe advanced the same faulty argument nearly 2,000 years later, takes us a long time to figure things out, when his careful measurements of stellar positions with the unaided eye revealed no such shift. These, earlier, these early observers did not realize how truly distant the stars were, and how small the change in their positions therefore was, even when the entire orbit of Earth was used as a baseline. The problem was that they didn't have the tools to measure parallax shifts too small to be seen with the human eye. By the 18th century, when there was no longer serious doubt about Earth's revolution, it became clear that the stars must be really far away. Astronomers equipped with telescopes began to devise instruments capable of measuring the tiny shifts of nearby stars relative to the background of more distant and thus unshifting celestial objects. This was a significant technical challenge since even for the nearest stars, parallax angles are usually only a fraction of a second of an arc. Recall that one second of an arc, an arc sec, is an angle of only one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. A coin the size of the U.S. quarter would appear to have a diameter of one arc second if you were viewing it from a distance of about five kilometers or three miles. Think about how small that angle is. No wonder it took astronomers so long before they could actually measure such really tiny shifts. The first successful detections of stellar parallax were in the year 1838, when Friedrich Bessel in Germany, Thomas Henderson, a Scottish astronomer working at the Cape of Good Hope, and Friedrich Struve in Russia independently, that is, without talking to each other, measured the parallaxes of the stars 61 Cygni, Alpha Centauri, and Vega, respectively. Even the closest star, Alpha Centauri, showed a total displacement of only about 1.5 arc seconds during the course of a year. There's a figure that the text is referring to, and it's figure 19.6, and it says, figure 19.6 shows how such measurements work. It's worth looking at. Seen from the opposite sides of Earth's orbit, a nearby star shift position when compared to a pattern of more distant stars. Astronomers actually define parallax to be one half the angle that a star shifts when seen from opposite sides of the Earth. And in the figure, it's an angle labeled P. The reason for this definition is just that they prefer to deal with a baseline of one astronomical unit instead of two astronomical units. We all know that one is a lot easier in mathematical operations than two when things like multiplication and division are involved.
to be honest, <laughs> in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't think in terms of things like arc seconds and arc minutes. So probably when you heard arc seconds just a moment ago, you probably thought, I don't know what that is. And, you know, from there, you could do a number of things. You could just sort of ignore it, shut down in that way. You could just ponder it the rest of the day. You could look it up. It's totally up to you when you're approached with information that you don't know. It's totally up to you what to do. And I think it'd be helpful because we're going to talk more about these kinds of quantities in the following discussion to explain a little bit about what they are. So let's actually take the third option and look into what the meaning is. So I'm going to pull some words from my friend Tom, who addresses the question, what are arc seconds and arc minutes? Okay. Imagine standing across the road from your house. How wide is your house? There are many different ways you could talk about the width of your house and even more units that you could use to express this information. You could choose meters, feet, inches, arm spans, footsteps, noses. <laughs> smoots was a quantity that, that was in my um, graduate school days where smoot was a measure of a person and they measured a bridge in that. So every time you'd walk across the Harvard Bridge, you would see it measured in smoots. It's pretty funny. All right. I want to describe a way of expressing the size that may not have occurred to you yet. In your mind, so imagine you're still facing your house. In your mind, draw a straight line from your feet to one end of the wall that's facing you. Draw another straight line joining your feet to the other end of the wall. On the floor in front of, your, in front of you, there should now be two lines that meet at the same point on your feet. In situations like this, you could measure the angle between the lines. And this would be one way of saying how far apart the two ends of the wall are from your particular viewpoint. Obviously, the answer you would get would change depending on where you're standing, and it wouldn't make a lot of practical sense. So we don't tend to use it on such small scales, say, from you to your house. But astronomers, but to astronomers, this is an incredibly useful tool for describing both the sizes of objects and their related positions in the sky. The massive distances between Earth and the most astronomical objects compared with the relatively tiny movements that we make over time, even in our lifetime, means that this is actually a pretty convenient and accurate way to measure things. Measuring sizes in this way doesn't give us their actual size, it's actually an apparent size, and we talk about angular sizes. For example, the angular diameter of the Moon, as seen from Earth, is around a half a degree. The moon is one of the largest objects from our viewpoint in the sky, so it's easy to see that numbers are going to get really small when we start talking about stars, which is where arc minutes come in. If you remember protractors from school, those plastic transparent circles or semicircles that you use to measure angles, well, this will be helpful. A protractor splits a circle into 360 equal slices called degrees. If you take just one of those degrees and slice it up into 60 even smaller slices, each slice is called an arc minute or a minute of an arc. So you just take a degree and you divide it into 60 equal parts and that part is equal to an arc minute. So 30 arc minutes is the same size as half a degree. The moon from Earth appears to be about 30 arc minutes in diameter. <laughs> Notice minutes comes in because we use the number 60. <laughs> Venus, occasionally the largest in terms of apparent size planet, only manages to get as large as 1.1 arc minutes in diameter seen from Earth. So that's a little over a 60th of a degree. 
Many things out there appear even smaller to us. Remember, Venus is close and it's kind of big. So we need even a smaller unit of measurement, and that's where arc seconds come in. So we've chopped a circle into 360 equal slices, which we call degrees. And we took one of those slices and chopped it into 10 to 60 tiny slices, and those are arc minutes. So if we take an arc minute, 1 60th of a degree, and chop it up into 60 even smaller slices, we have an arc second. So Venus has an angular diameter, if we use arc seconds, of about 66 arc seconds, or in other words, 1.1 arc minute. Congratulations, you are now a master of a unit that would send 99.99999% of people walking on the sidewalk running in the opposite direction because it's just too much to comprehend. <laughs> and really, it's quite simple, isn't it? You have 60 arc seconds in an arc minute, and you have 60 arc minutes in one degree of width. You know that time is really nothing to do with it, but the number 60 is natural because we're used to thinking about seconds and minutes in terms of the number 60. Okay, we're going to use this concept as we march on in the reading, and we're going to introduce another unit, and that's called the parsec. So now let's look at units of stellar distance, and we'll start with a question. One thing that you know is that our baseline as we measure parallax from stars is, if we're measuring from Earth, is really the diameter of Earth's orbit around the sun. So it seems huge, but the stars are so far away, it's still really hard. Just like if you make your take your thumb and you have rubber arms and you can extend it, you know, kilometers and kilometers away, our eyes would have to be really far apart. It, they wouldn't even fit on our head to be able to see parallax for our thumb. So the question is, how far away would a star have to be to have a parallax, according to observers on Earth, of one arc second? The answer turns out to be quite large. It's 3.26 light years. This is equivalent to about 31 trillion kilometers. And that unit, we give a special name, the parsec. So in other words, one parsec is equal to 3.26 light years. One parsec is equal to about 31 trillion kilometers. So parsec, the word, is derived from the distance at which we have a parallax of one arc second. The distance of a star in parsecs is really just the reciprocal of its parallax in arc seconds. So in other words, remember, parsecs is a measure of distance. It's 3.26 light years away. And so all we need to do to find how many parsecs something is away is to find its parallax in arc seconds and take one over that value. For example, a star with a parallax of 0.1 arc second would be found at a distance of 10 parsecs. So you have one over 0.1, and that's equal to 10. So 10 parsecs away. So if we see a star of 0.1 arc, secs, arc seconds, it's 10 parsecs, and so that would be equal to 32.6 light years, 10 times 3.26 light years, which is the definition of a par parsec. One star with a parallax of 0.05 arc seconds would then be 20 parsecs away. It would be twice as far. Back in the days when most of our distances came from parallax measurements, a parsec was a useful unit of distance, but it's not as intuitive as the light year. One advantage of the light year is that, as a unit, it emphasizes the fact, as we look out into space, that we're looking back in time. 
The light that we see from a star a hundred light years away left that star a hundred years ago. And if we were to send a signal to that star, the light it would receive from us would take a hundred years. So it would, it's a two-way street in that respect. What we study is not the star as it is now, but rather as it was in the past. When we look into space, we're looking into history. And if you think about it, when we look at galaxies through telescopes, because they're so far away, we're looking at the light that left those galaxies before Earth even existed. I guess you could say that we can never run away from our history. We're looking at it all the time. The text reads that in this text we will use light years as our unit of distance, but many astronomers still use parsecs when they write technical papers or talk with each other at meetings. To convert between two distance units, just bear in mind that one parsec is the same thing as 3.26 light years, and one light year, therefore, is 0.31 parsecs. There's an example calculation here that's worth taking a look at. So this is <laughs> physics at its easiest. And it says, how far is a light year? A light year is the distance that light travels in one year. And then it asks, given that light travels at a speed of 300,000 kilometers per second, how many kilometers are there in a light year? And to answer this question, we need to know what the definition of speed is. And speed is equal to distance per unit time. And so what we can do is we can rearrange that equation so that we have distance equal to velocity times time. So if there are 365 days in a year, to determine the seconds, we've got to figure out how many seconds are in a day. So the way we do that is we convert a day into hours, and then convert those hours into minutes, and then convert those minutes into seconds. So the equation for that becomes one day times 24 hours per day times 24 minutes per hour times 60 seconds per minute, and we end up with 86,400 seconds in a day. So how do we get the number of seconds in a year? Well, we just need to take the number of seconds in a day and multiply it by how many days there are in a year. And that is 365 days per year times 86,400 seconds in a day. And we end up with 31,536,000 seconds in a year. So we have that amount of time in seconds. Now to find the distance traveled by light in a year, we just take the velocity given in distance per second and multiply it by the total number of seconds in a year. So we have 300,000 kilometers per second times 31,536,000 seconds, and we end up with 9.46 times 10 to the 12th kilometers, or in other words, 9 trillion 460 million kilometers in a year. That's nearly 10 trillion kilometers that light travels in a year. And to imagine how long this distance is, one note is that a string one light year long could fit around the circumference of the Earth 236 million times. So just do that 10 trillion times and you have about the total distance.
There is another box here, an Astronomy Basics box, called Naming Stars, and it reads, you may be wondering why stars have such a confusing assortment of names. Just look at the first three stars to have their parallaxes measured, 61 Cygni, Alpha Centauri, and Vega. Each of these names comes from a different tradition of designating stars. The brightest stars have names that derive from the ancients. Some are from the Greek, such as Sirius, which means the scorched one, a reference to his brilliance. A few are from Latin, but many of the best-known names are from Arabic, because as discussed before, much of the Greek and Roman astronomy was <laughs> rediscovered in Europe after the Dark Ages by means of Arabic translations. Vega, for example, means swooping eagle, and Betelgeuse, pronounced by some Betelgeuse, means the right hand of the central one. In 1603, German astronomer Johann Beher introduced a more systematic approach to naming stars. For each constellation, he designed a he assigned a Greek letter to the brightest stars, roughly in order of brightness. In the constellation of Orion, for example, Betelgeuse is the brightest star, so it got the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha, and is known as Alpha Orionis. Orionis is the possessive form of Orion, so Alpha Orionis means the first of Orion. A star called Rigel, being the second brightest in that constellation, is called Beta Orionis. Since there are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, the system allows for the labeling of 24 stars in each constellation, but constellations sometimes have many more stars than that. In 1725, the English astronomer Royal John Flamsteed introduced yet another system in which the brighter stars eventually got a number in each constellation in order of their location in the sky, or more precisely, their right ascension, which is just a geometry term in astronomy. The system of sky coordinates that includes the right ascension is discussed in a previous chapter. In this system, Betelgeuse is called 58 Orionis, and 61 Cygni is the 61st star in the constellation of Cygnus, the swan. It gets worse. As astronomers began to understand more and more about stars, they drew up a series of specialized star catalogs, and fans of those catalogs have been calling stars by their catalog numbers. If you look in Appendix I um, of this book, our list of the nearest stars, which uh, many of which are too faint to get an ancient name, Bayer letter, or Flamsteed number, you will see references to some of these catalogs. An example is a set of stars <laughs> labeled with a BD number for Bonner Durchmusterung. This was a mammoth catalog of over 324,000 stars in a series of zones in the sky organized at the Bonn Observatory in the 1850s and 1860s. Keep in mind that this catalog was made before photography or computers came into use, so the position of each star had to be measured at least twice by eye a daunting undertaking for 324,000 stars. There's also a completely different system for keeping track of stars whose luminosity varies, and another for stars who brighten explosively at unpredictable times. Astronomers have gotten used to the many different star naming systems, but students and astronomers often find them bewildering and wish astronomers would settle on one. Don't hold your breath. In astronomy, as in many fields of human thought, including measurement, of distances. Tradition holds a powerful attraction. Still, with high-speed computer databases to aid human memory, names may become less and less necessary. 
Today's astronomers often refer to stars by their precise locations in the sky rather than by their names or various catalog numbers. This really shows the difficulty that arises when you try and switch from a traditional way of naming or cataloging or describing something. You can end up with a thousand new ways proposed by different people who think they have the right way. The nearest stars. No known star other than the sun is within one light year or even one parsec, which is that 3.26 light years of Earth. The stellar neighbors nearest the sun are three stars in the constellation of Centaurus. To the unaided eye, the brightest of these three stars is Alpha Centauri which is only 30 degrees from the south celestial pole and hence not visible from the mainland United States. Alpha Centauri itself is a binary star, two stars in mutual revolution, too close together to be distinguished without a telescope. These two stars are 4.4 light years from us. Nearby is a third faint star known as Proxima Centauri. Proxima, with a distance of 4.3 light years, is slightly closer to us than the other two stars. If Proxima Centauri is part of a triple star system with the binary Alpha Centauri, it seems likely, and <laughs> which seems likely, then its orbital period may be longer than 500,000 years. Proxima Centauri is an example of the most common type of star and our most common type of stellar neighborhood, as we saw in a previous section. Low-mass red M-dwarfs make up about 70% of all stars and dominate the census of stars within 10 parsecs, which is about 33 light-years of the Sun. For example, a recent survey of, solar, of the solar neighborhood counted 357 stars and brown dwarfs within 10 parsecs, and 248 of these are red dwarfs. Yet, if you want to see an M-dwarf with your naked eye, <clears throat> you would be out of luck. These stars produce only a fraction of the sun's light, and nearly all of them require a telescope to be detected because they're so far away. The nearest star visible without a telescope for most of the United States is the brightest appearing of all stars, Sirius, which has a distance of a little more than eight light years. It too is a binary system composed of a faint white dwarf orbiting a bluish white main sequence star. It's an interesting coincidence of numbers that light reaches us from the sun in about eight minutes and from the next brightest star in the sky in about eight years. We began this section defining triangulation and parallax and showing how triangulation is used on Earth by surveyors and how on Earth we can use triangulation to measure stars that are some distance from Earth. And we also talked about distance, you know, what is exactly a light year and what can we tell about the width of an object, a point of light in the sky. But we haven't really talked about how we can use parallax when we make measurements from space. So we use something in space to make these parallax measurements. Let's talk about that. The measurements of stellar parallax were revolutionized by the launch of the spacecraft Hipparchus in 1989, which measured distances for thousands of stars out to about 300 light years away with an accuracy of 10 to 20%. However, even 300 light years are less than 1% the size of our galaxy's main disk. In December 2013, the successor to Hipparchus named Gaia was launched by the European Space Agency. Gaia is famous, and Gaia is measuring the position and distances to almost 1 billion stars with an accuracy of a few millionths of an arc second. Gaia's distance limit will extend well beyond Hipparchus, studying stars out to 
30,000 light years. That's about 100 times further than Hipparchus, covering nearly a third of the galactic disk. Gaia will also be able to measure the proper motions for thousands of stars in the halo of the Milky Way, something that can only be done for the brightest stars right now. At the end of Gaia's mission, we will not only have a three-dimensional map of a large fraction of our own Milky Way galaxy, but we will also have a strong link in the chain of cosmic distances that we are discussing in this chapter. Yet, to, the, <laughs> to extend this change beyond Gaia's reach and explore distances to nearby galaxies, we need some completely new techniques. This section concludes with a making connections box and then a link to learning box. The making connections box is on parallax and space astronomy and it reads, one of the most difficult things about precisely measuring the tiny angles of parallax shifts from Earth is that you have to observe the stars through our planet's atmosphere. The effect of the atmosphere is to spread out points of light, starlight, into fuzzy disks making exact measurements of their positions more difficult. Astronomers had long dreamed of being able to measure the parallaxes from space, and two orbiting observatories have now turned this dream into a reality. The name of the Hipparchus satellite, launched in 1989 by the European Space Agency, is both an abbreviation for High Precision Parallax Collecting Satellite and a tribute to Hipparchus, the pioneering Greek astronomer whose work we know a little bit about from re previous readings. The satellite was designed to make the most accurate parallax measurements in history from 36,000 kilometers above Earth. However, its onboard rocket motor failed to fire, which means it didn't get the needed boost to reach the desired altitude. Hipparchus ended up spending its four-year life in an elliptical orbit that varied from 500 to 36,000 kilometers high. In this orbit, the satellite plunged into Earth's radiation belts every five hours or so, which finally took its toll on the solar panels providing energy to power the instruments. Nevertheless, the mission was successful, resulting in two catalogs. One gives the position of 120,000 stars to an accuracy of one thousandth of an arc second, about the diameter of a golf ball in New York as viewed from Europe. The second catalog contains information for more than a million stars whose positions have been measured to 30 thousandth of an arc second. We now have an accurate parallax measurement of stars out to distances of about 300 light years. And with ground-based telescopes, accurate measurements were feasible only to about 60 light years. In order to build on the success of Hipparchus, in 2013, the European Space Agency launched a new satellite called Gaia. The Gaia mission is scheduled to last for five years. Because Gaia carries larger telescopes than Hipparchus, it can observe fainter stars and measure their positions 200 times more accurately. The main goal of the Gaia mission is to make an accurate three-dimensional map of that portion of the galaxy within about 30,000 light years by observing a billion stars, 70 times each, measuring their positions and hence parallaxes as well as their brightnesses. For a long time, the measurement of parallaxes and accurate stellar positions was a backwater of astron astronomical research, mainly because the accuracy of measurements did not improve much for about 100 years. However, the ability to make measurements from space has revolutionized this field of astronomy and will continue to provide a critical link in our chain of cosmic distances. The link to learning box has a link that I encourage you to visit. In fact, actually it has two links, but take a look if you have a moment. It reads, the European Space Agency 
which is kind of like NASA, abbreviated ESA, maintains a Gaia mission website where you can learn more about the Gaia mission and get the latest news on Gaia observations. It also says to learn more about Hipparchus, explore this European Space Agency webpage with an ESA vodcast charting the galaxy from Hipparchus to Gaia. This is section 19.3, variable stars, one key to cosmic distances. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. One, describe how some stars vary their light output and why such stars are important. And two, explain the importance of pulsating variable stars, such as Cepheids and RR Lyra type stars to study our universe. Let's briefly review the key reasons that measuring distances to stars is such a struggle. Stars come in a bewildering variety of intrinsic luminosities. If you remember, if stars were like light bulbs, we'd say they come in a wide range of wattages. If stars had all the same luminosity, or in other words, the same wattage, then the more distant stars would always look dimmer, and we could tell how far away they are simply by how dim they appear. In the real universe, when we look at a star in our sky with eye or a telescope and measure its apparent brightness. We can't know whether it looks dim because it's a low wattage light bulb, that is low luminosity star, or because it's far away or perhaps some combination of the two. Astronomers need to discover something else about the star that allows us to read off its intrinsic luminosity. In fact, in effect, to know what the star's true wattage is. With this information, we can then attribute how dim it looks from Earth to its distance. Recall that the apparent brightness of an object decreases with the square of the distance to that object. If two objects have the same luminosity, but one is three times further away than the other, the more distant one would look nine times fainter. Therefore, if we know the luminosity of a star and its apparent brightness, we can calculate how far away the star is. Astronomers have long searched for techniques that would somehow allow us to determine the luminosity of a star. And it is to these techniques that we turn next. Before moving forward, we need to define what a variable star is. Okay. The breakthrough in measuring distances to remote parts of our galaxy and other galaxies as well came from the study of variable stars. Most stars are constant in their luminosity, to at least within a percent or two. Like the Sun, they generate a steady flow of energy from their interiors. However, some stars are seen to vary in brightness, and for this reason they're called variable stars. Many such stars vary on a regular cycle, like the flashing bulbs that decorate stores and homes during the winter holidays. Let's define some tools to help us keep track of how a star varies. A graph that shows how the brightness of a variable star changes with time is called a light curve. The maximum is the point of the light curve where the star has its greatest brightness. The minimum is the point where it's the faintest. If the light variations repeat themselves periodically, the interval between two maxima is called the period of the star. An example of a light curve is given in figure 19.9 in the text, and on the vertical axis is a measure of its brightness, and on the horizontal axis is a measure of time in terms of days. And what the curve shows is that the brightness reaches a peak and then falls to a minimum and then reaches a peak and then falls to a minimum, much like a regular wave, like in the ocean. So in this case, there are equal distances between the peaks and equal distances between the minima. That's what the light curve looks like. Pulsating variables. There are two special types of variable stars for which, as we shall see, 
Measurements of the light curve give us accurate distances. These are called Cepheid and RR Lyra variables, both of which are pulsating variable stars. So cool. Such a star actually changes its diameter with time, periodically expanding and contracting, as your chest does when you breathe. We now understand that these stars are going through a brief, unstable stage late in their lives. The expansion and contraction of the pulsating variables can be measured by using the Doppler effect. The lines in the spectrum shift toward blue as the surface of the star moves towards us, and then shift to the red as the surface shrinks back. As the star pulsates, it also changes its overall color, indicating that its temperature is also varying. And the most important for our purposes, the luminosity of the pulsating variable also changes in a regular way as it expands and contracts. Cepheid variables. Let's look at these guys. Cepheids are large yellow pulsating stars named for the first known star of the group Delta Cephei. This is, by the way, another example of how confusing naming conventions get in astronomy. Here, the whole class of stars is named after the constellation in which the first one happened to be found. <laughs> the variable the variability of the star was discovered in 1784 by the young English astronomer John Goodrick. The star rises rather rapidly to a maximum in light and then falls slowly to a minimum in light, taking a total of 5.4 days for one complete cycle. The curve in figure 19.9 represents a simplified version of the light curve for the star. As it turns out, several hundred Cepheid variables are known in our own galaxy. Most Cepheids have periods in the range of 3 to 50 days, and luminosities that are about 1,000 to 10,000 times greater than our Sun. Their variations in luminosity range from a few percent to a factor of 10. Polaris, the North Star, is a Cepheid variable that for a long time varied by one-tenth of a magnitude, or 10% in visual luminosity, in a period of just under four days. Recent measurements indicate that the amount by which the brightness of Polaris changes is decreasing, and that sometime in the future this star will no longer be a pulsating variable. This is just one more piece of the evidence that stars really do evolve and change in fundamental ways as they age, and that being a Cepheid variable represents a stage in the life of the star. Let's look at the period luminosity relation. The importance of Cepheid variables lies in the fact that their periods and average luminosities turn out to be directly related. The longer the period, that is, the longer it takes the star to vary in luminosity, the greater its luminosity. This period luminosity relation was a remarkable discovery, one for which astronomers still, but pardon the expression, think they're lucky stars. The period of such a star is easy to measure. A good telescope and a good clock are all that you need. Once you have the period, the relationship, which can be put into precise mathematical terms, will give you the luminosity of the star. Let's be clear on what it means. The relation allows you to essentially read off how bright the star is, that is, how much energy it puts out. Astronomers can then compare the intrinsic brightness with the apparent brightness of the star. As we saw, the difference between the two allows them to calculate the distance. The relation between period and luminosity was discovered in 1908 by Henrietta Leavitt, a staff member at the Harvard College Observatory and one of a number of women working for low wages, assisting Edward Pickering, the observatory's director. Leavitt discovered hundreds of variable stars in the Large Magellanic Cloud and Small Magellanic Cloud, two great star systems that are actually neighboring galaxies, although they were not known to be galaxies but at that point in time. A small fraction of these variables were Cepheids. 
These systems presented a wonderful opportunity to study the behavior of variable stars independent of their distance. For all practical purposes, the Magellanic Clouds are so far away that astronomers can assume that all the stars in them are roughly the same distance from us, in the same way all the suburbs of Los Angeles are <laughs> roughly the same distance from New York City. Of course, if you're in Los Angeles, you'll notice annoying distances between the suburbs, but when compared to how far away New York City is, the differences seem really small. If all the variable stars in the Magellanic Clouds are roughly the same distance, then any difference in their apparent brightness must be caused by differences in their intrinsic luminosities. Levitt found that the brighter appearing Cepheids always have the longer periods of light variation. Thus, she reasoned the period must be related to the luminosity of the stars. When Levitt did this work, the distance to the Magellanic Clouds was not known, so she was only able to show that luminosity was related to period. She couldn't determine exactly what the relationship was. To define the period luminosity relation with actual numbers to calibrate it, that is, astronomers first had to measure the actual distances to a few nearby Cepheids in another way. This was accomplished by finding Cepheids associated in clusters with other stars whose distances could be estimated from their spectra, as discussed in the next section of this chapter. But once the relationship was thus defined, they could give us distances to any Cepheids wherever they might be located. Here, at last, was the technique astronomers had been searching for to break the confines of distance that parallax imposed on them. Cepheids can be observed and monitored, it turns out, in many parts of our own galaxy, and in other nearby galaxies as well. Astronomers, including Hertzsprung and Harvard's Harlow Shapley, immediately saw the potential of the technique. They, and many others, set to work exploring more distant reaches of space, using Cepheids as signposts. In the 1920s, Edwin Hubble made one of the most significant astronomical discoveries of all time using Cepheids when he observed them in nearby galaxies and discovered the expansion of the universe. As we will see, this work still continues as the Hubble Space Telescope and other modern instruments try to identify and measure individual Cepheids in galaxies farther and farther away. The most distant known variable stars are all Cepheids, with some about 60 million light years away. There's a box here, Voyagers and Astronomy box, on John Goodrick, and it reads, The brief life of John Goodrick is a testament to the human spirit under adversity. Born deaf and unable to speak, Goodrick nevertheless made a number of pioneering discoveries in astronomy through patient and careful observations of the heavens. Born in Holland, where his father was on a diplomatic mission, Goodrick was sent back to England at an age of eight to study at a special school for the deaf. He did sufficiently well to enter Warrington Academy, a secondary school that offered no special assistant for students with handicaps. His mathematics teacher there inspired an interest in astronomy, and in 1781, at the age of 17, Goodrick began observing the sky at his family home in York, England. Within a year, he had discovered the brightness variations of the star Algol and suggested that an unseen companion star was causing the changes, a theory that waited over 100 years for proof. His paper on the subject was read before the main British group of scientists known as the Royal Society in 1783 and won him a medal from that distinguished group. In the meantime, Goodrick had discovered two other stars that varied regularly, both of which continued to interest astronomer, astronomers for years to come. Goodrick shared his interest in observing with his older cousin, who went on to discover, to discover more variable stars during his much longer life. But Goodrick's time was quickly drawing to a close. At age 21, 
Only two weeks after he was elected to be part of the Royal Society, he caught a cold while making astronomical observations, and he never recovered. Today, the University of York has a building named Goodrick Hall and a plaque that honors his contributions to science. Yet, if you go to the churchyard cemetery where he is buried, an overgrown tombstone has only the initials JG to show where he lies. There's an astronomer who looked carefully into Goodrick's life and speculated on why the marker is so modest. Perhaps the rather staid Goodrick relatives were ashamed of having a deaf mute in the family and couldn't sufficiently appreciate how much a man who could not hear could nevertheless see. Let's talk about the RR Lyra stars. A related group of stars whose nature was understood somewhat later than that of the Cepheids are called RR Lyra variables, named after the star RR Lyra, the best known member of the group. More common than Cepheids, but less luminous, thousands of these pulsating variables are in our own galaxy. The periods of RR Lyra stars are always less than a day, and their changes in brightness are typically lessened by a factor of two. Astronomers have observed that RR Lyra stars occurring in any particular cluster all have about the same apparent brightness. Since stars in a cluster are all the approximately the same distance from us, it follows that RR Lyra variables must have nearly the same intrinsic luminosity, which turns out to be about 50 times the luminosity of our sun. In this sense, RR Lyras are a bit like standard light bulbs and can be used to obtain distances, particularly within our own galaxy. There's a figure, figure 19.4, that displays the ranges of periods and luminosities for both the Cepheids and the RR Lyra stars. And in the figure, luminosity is plotted on the vertical axis and period in terms of days is plotted on the horizontal axis. And what we see is that the RR Lyra stars are clustered in the lower left. So they have small changes in luminosity for very short periods. And the Cepheids extend along a line that has a slope that's positive. So the line goes from a middle left region all the way to the upper right. This is the last section in chapter nine. It's 19.4, the HR diagram and cosmic distances. And by the end of the section, you should be able to do two things. First, understand how spectral types are used to estimate stellar luminosities. And two, examine how these techniques are used by astronomers today. Variable stars are not the only way that we can estimate the luminosity of stars. Another way involves the beloved HR diagram, which shows that the intrinsic brightness of a star can be estimated if we know its spectral type. Let's see how this works. As satisfying and productive as variable stars have been for distance measurement, these stars are rare and are not found near all objects that we wish to measure the distances to. Suppose, for example, we need the distance to a star that's not varying, or a group of stars, none of which is variable. In this case, it turns out the HR diagram can come to our rescue. If we can observe the spectrum of a star, we can estimate its distance from our understanding of the HR diagram. A detailed examination of a stellar spectrum allows astronomers to classify the star into one of the spectral types indicating surface temperature. We talked about this a little bit earlier. The types are O, B, A, F, G, M, K, L, T, and Y, each of which can be divided into a number of subgroups. In general, however, the spectral type alone is not enough to allow us to estimate its luminosity. 
For example, a G2 star could be a main sequence star with a luminosity equal to that of our sun, or it could be a giant with a luminosity 100 times that of our sun, or it could even be a supergiant with even higher luminosity. As it turns out, we can learn more from a star's spectrum than just its temperature. Remember, for example, that we can detect pressure differences in stars from the details of the spectrum. This knowledge is really useful because giant stars are larger and have lower pressures than main sequence stars, and supergiants are still larger than giants. If we look in detail at the spectrum of a star, we can determine whether it is a main sequence star, a giant, or a supergiant. To start with a simple example, suppose that the spectrum, color, and other properties of a distant G2 star match those of the Sun exactly. It's then reasonable to conclude that this distant star is likely to be a main sequence star just like the Sun, and to have the same luminosity as the Sun. But if there are subtle differences between the solar spectrum and the spectrum of the distant star, then the distant star might be a giant or even a supergiant. The most widely used system of stellar classification divides stars of a given spectral class into six categories called luminosity classes. These luminosity classes are denoted by Roman numerals as follows. 1a are the brightest supergiants. 1b are the less luminous supergiants. 2 are the bright giants. 3 are the giants. Four are the subgiants, which are intermediate between giants and main sequence stars, and five are the main sequence stars. The full spectral specification of a star includes its luminosity class. For example, a main sequence star with a spectral class F3 is written as, is written as F3V. The spectral classification for an M2 giant is M23. There's a figure in the text that I encourage you to take a look at, and it's figure 1915. It illustrates the approximate positions of stars of various luminosity classes on the HR diagram. In the figure, dashed portions of lines represent regions with very few or no stars at all. With both its spectral and luminosity classes known, a star's position on the HR diagram is uniquely determined. Since the diagram plots luminosity versus temperature, this means we can now read off the star's luminosity. As before, if we know how luminous a star really is and see how dim it actually looks, the difference allows us to calculate its distance. The HR diagram method allows astronomers to estimate distances to nearby stars, as well as some of the most distant stars in our galaxy but it's anchored by measurements of parallax. The distances measured using parallax are the gold standard for distances. They rely on no assumptions, only geometry. Once astronomers take a spectrum of a nearby star for which we know the parallax, we know the luminosity that corresponds to that spectral type. Nearby stars thus serve as benchmarks for more distant stars because we can assume that two stars with identical spectra have the same intrinsic luminosity. Now, a few words about the real world. Introductory textbooks such as this one work hard to present the material in a straightforward and simplified way. In doing so, they sometimes do students a disservice by making scientific techniques seem too clean and painless. In the real world, the techniques we've just described turn out to be really messy and difficult, and often only gives astronomers headaches that last long into the day. For example, the relationships discussed, such as the period-luminosity relation for certain variable stars, aren't exactly straight lines on a graph, 
the points representing many stars scattered widely when plotted, and thus the distances derived from them also have a certain built-in scatter or uncertainty. The distances we measure with the methods we have discussed are therefore only accurate to within a certain percentage of error, sometimes 10% and sometimes 25%, sometimes as much as 50% or more. A 25% error for a star estimated to be 10,000 light years away means it could be somewhere between 7,500 and 12,500 light years away. This work would be unacceptable uncertainty if you were loading fuel in a spaceship for a trip to a star. But it's not a bad first figure to work with if you're an astronomer stuck on planet Earth. Nor is the construction of the HR diagrams as easy as you might think at first. To make a good diagram, you need to measure the characteristics and distances of many stars, which can be a time-consuming task. Since our own solar neighborhood is already well mapped, the stars astronomers most want to study to advance our knowledge are likely to be far away and faint. It may take hours of observing to, to obtain a single spectrum. Observers may have to spend many nights at the telescope and many days back home working with their data before they get their distance measurement. Fortunately, this is changing because surveys like Gaia will study billions of stars producing public data sets that all astronomers can use. Despite these difficulties, the tools we've been discussing allow us to measure a remarkable range of distances. Parallaxes for the near stars, RR Lyra for variable stars, and the HR diagram for clusters of stars in our own and nearby galaxies, and Cepheids out to distances of 60 million light years. Each technique described in this chapter builds on at least one other method, forming what many call the cosmic distance ladder. Parallaxes are the foundation of all stellar distance estimates. Spectroscopic methods use nearby stars to calibrate their HR diagrams, and RR Lyra and Cepheid distance estimates are grounded in HR diagram distance measurements, and even in parallax measurements to a nearby Cepheid. This chain of methods allows astronomers to push the limits when looking for even more distant stars. Recent work, for example, has used RR Lyra stars to identify dim companion galaxies in our own Milky Way out at distances of 300,000 light years. The HR diagram method was recently used to identify the two most distant stars in the galaxy, red stars, <laughs> red giant stars, way out in the halo of the Milky Way with distances of almost 1 million light years. We can combine the distances we find for stars with measurements of their composition, luminosity, and temperature made with the techniques described earlier. Together, these make up the arsenal of information we need to trace the evolution of stars from birth to death, the subject to which we turn in the chapters that follow. We've reached the summary for chapter 19. 19.1, fundamental units of distance. Early measurements of length were based on human dimensions, but today we use worldwide standards that specify lengths in units, such as the meter, Distances within the solar system are now determined by timing how long it takes radar signals to travel from Earth to the surface of the planet or another body and then return. 19.2. Surveying the stars. For stars that are relatively nearby, we can triangulate the distances from a baseline created by Earth's annual motion around the Sun. Half the shift in a nearby star's position relative to very distant background stars as viewed from opposite sides of Earth's orbit is called the parallax of that star and is a measure of its distance. 
The units, of, to <laughs> the units to measure stellar distance are the light year, the distance light travels in a year, and the parsec, the distance of a star with a parallax of one arc second. The closest star, a red dwarf, is over one parsec away. The first successful measurement of stellar parallaxes were reported in 1838. Parallax measurements are a fundamental link in the chain of cosmic distances. The Hipparchus satellite allowed us to measure accurate parallaxes for stars out to about 300 light years, and Gaia, the Gaia mission, will result in parallaxes out to 30,000 light years. 19.3 Variable stars, one key to cosmic distances. Cepheids and RR Lyra stars are two types of pulsating variable stars. Light curves of these stars show that their luminosities vary with a regularly repeating period. RR Lyra stars can be used as standard light bulbs, and the Cepheid variables obey a period luminosity relation, so measuring their periods can tell us their luminosities. Then we can calculate their distances by comparing their luminosities with their apparent brightnesses, and this can allow us to measure the distances to these stars out to over 60 million light years. 19.4, the HR diagram and cosmic distances. Stars with identical temperatures but different pressures and diameters have somewhat different spectra. Spectral classification can therefore be used to estimate the luminosity class of a star as well as its temperature. As a result, a spectrum can allow us to pinpoint where the star is located on an HR diagram and establish its luminosity. This, with a star's apparent brightness, again yields its distance. The various distance methods can be used as a check, so to check one against another and thus make a kind of distance ladder, which allows us to find even larger distances. We've come to the end to the reading of chapter 19, and I hope you've enjoyed this audio version, and I hope that you're walking away with a better appreciation of how we determine the distance to those points of light in the night sky. We can use parallax for the close ones. We see the shift as we move from one season to the next, but we have to be a little bit more clever and rely on how often their brightness changes over time and what their spectrum is telling us about where they are in the HR diagram to tell us something about distance. It's that fun and that flexibility that I find in science and also other fields that keeps learning something really fun. And I hope that you discover this sort of creative and flexible thinking in the field that you decide to go into and apply it in your profession, in your daily lives, and always keep your mind open to learning new, sometimes unexpected things and relationships between things. I look forward to seeing you in chapter 20, and until then, keep thinking about this material, and good luck studying.